C.S. Lewis wrote an essay uh, entitled The Inner Ring, and in that essay, Lewis speaks of our, and this is really something that affects all of us um, in one way or another, and it begins at the, in the earliest uh, stages of our lives, and it, we don't really ever graduate from it. We're affected and impacted by it. This, this desire to be accepted, this desire to be included in a, in, a, in a circle or within a group of, of people. Uh, and he writes of how we, we all have this desire, this longing uh, for this acceptance, for this embrace, for this inclusion. And he also writes of the, the terrible fear that perhaps we might be excluded, that we might be left on the, on the outside, left out in the cold. Um, it's, a, it's a strong desire, stronger than we know. It's a subtle desire uh, perhaps more subtle than we know, and it's one that we need to be taken seriously because it can take us into terrible places, this desire to be in the inner ring. I've been reflecting on that essay and some of what uh, Lewis has been, was saying there, and uh, it seems to me that that desire to be included, accepted, a part of the inner ring, is something that can be traced way back and way deep. Um, it's it's uh, something that it's, it's a longing. It speaks to a longing that we have had in our hearts. I say we as the race of humankind going all the way back to the beginning. All the way back to the garden itself. This longing uh, to be with God. And yet at the same time, this tension in that longing because we have Genesis 1 and 2 with the creation, but of course Genesis 3, the account of the fall, right? I mean, you've got, think back to what you read in, in Genesis 2 in particular of, of our first parents, Adam and Eve, walking with God in the cool of the day, an extraordinary image, hard for us to get our, our minds around. And then, of course, that was utterly disrupted with the fall and their turning their backs on him, thinking that they knew better, could do better, could call the shots better, um, reduced then uh, to, to making fig leaves for themselves, covering up, uh, hiding amidst the vegetation, the trees there in, in the garden, ashamed of what they'd done, ashamed of what they'd become. This was clearly not how things were meant to be. Um, can that be repaired? Can that breach be repaired? Can the damage be undone? Uh, can we be, frankly, can we be made right with God? And if so, how? Is peace possible with God? And if so, how? Well, if you've got a Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn now with me to Romans. Romans chapter Five. This is in the New Testament. If you're trying to, to find it, it's after the four Gospels that we have, those historical accounts uh, from the first century of Jesus' earthly ministry, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then you have Acts, which is the account of the earliest days of the church in the first century. And then you have uh, the book of Romans, which is really a letter, a letter to the church in Rome that Paul was writing. And uh, pick up in chapter 5. Of Romans, Romans chapter 5, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. We're really honing in on verse 1, but I do want to read the, the whole of this 
section. Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. Hear now God's word. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with, with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Would you pray with me? Lord, all of us know something of this desire, this pull to be embraced, to be accepted to be a part of a group, um, to know approval. And we ask that you would help us to understand the, the deep roots of that and how it's pointing us toward a, a deeper desire, a deeper longing, and an even deeper need. And we pray that you'd help us to understand not just that desire and that longing, but how in your Son, the one whose arrival on the scene we have been celebrating this month, how in his arrival that desire has been met. The hopes and fears of all the years met in him. And uh, we pray that you would help us to see indeed that peace with you is, is possible. It has been accomplished. It is done. And what it means then to lay hands, lay hold of that and, and live in it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to share with you a few uh, headlines just to get you to reflect on this just, just for a moment. And I'm not going to delve deeply into the issues at stake. It's just a kind of a commonality okay, in some of these recent headlines. So you have President Obama in, in recent weeks granting amnesty to illegal aliens. You have um, our State Department shifting around with negotiations with Iran in terms of their nuclear capabilities. Uh, just here recently, we have the normalization of our relationship with Cuba. Now, what do all these have in common? Uh, again, I'm not, in for, I'm not coming anywhere close, please understand, to making any political commentary on any of those. It's not the point. The point is what they have in common, and what they have in common is this, parties once at odds now being brought together. That's really loosely speaking, at least the commonality that you can see there. Parties who have long been at odds being, at least in some way, uh, brought together, which means, of course, then that how they relate, whichever one of those cases you want to think of, how they relate is changed. 
It's, it's something new that has taken place. Or if you want to think in terms of peace treaties, right, where one nation works things out with a, another nation, at least ideally, and um, now again, parties that had once been at odds are now being brought together in some way. And you think in terms of the changes that that then brings, the changes the dynamics of the communication. You know, they're not so much really supposed to be adversaries, so how they communicate, the, 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 the tone is supposed to be brought down just a little bit. Things be cooled off just a little bit. The energies, right, are going to be directed in different ways. You know, maybe we're not going to build up so much military might at our borders, right, because we're supposed to be, right, we've got a treaty, at least ostensibly. Um, Fear, the fear that we might have directed towards that other party that we've been at enmity with, at, at war with, maybe even, has now been taken away. Well, there's something of that. The reason I'm running along those lines, there's something of that here in our text that Paul is speaking of here in Romans 5, that, that peace has been achieved and it changes everything. When we, write, when we grab hold of it, when, when we understand what Paul is saying here, something dramatic has transpired. And at, to the extent that we grasp this, to the extent that we grab hold of this, and Paul tells us this as he unpacks us, some of the impact of that, it changes two things, our future hope, how we, how we think in terms of what's coming, and also even in terms of, of how we think of what's going on now. In particular, our troubles, our trials, our tribulations, our, our sufferings, the difficulties of life. Something has happened that changes how our outlook as to how we look towards what's coming and what we're enduring now. My goodness, what would that be? That sounds fairly significant, something that could change our outlook towards those things. Um, looking towards the future, he's saying that, that one day everything's going to be made right. Everything's going to be made whole. Everything's going to be glorified. Everything's going to be perfected. Because of this thing. We can know because of this thing that has happened. Also because of this thing that has happened, that has been achieved, that has been accomplished. As we are going through the trials of tribulation, sufferings, whatever form they may take, even in, in these days, we can know, taking a step back, even in the midst of our tears, know and with some glimmer of confidence that in the end it's all going to be worth it. It's not going to prove to be um, futile. And empty, but rather in the end full of meaning and significance as he works change. There's a possibility of growth even in our trials. Now, what on earth, Paul, you are saying some extraordinary things. You are putting a lot of weight on whatever this is that you're saying has happened to change our outlook towards what's coming and what we're enduring now. What is it that you are saying has happened that could so radically upend the way that we look at these things? And Paul tells us. Jesus has come to bring peace with God. Jesus has come to bring us peace with God, and it has flipped everything. It has changed everything. It is a transformative reality. It is a transformative message. No wonder, my goodness, the angels, we've been saying this over the last few weeks, the angels over the fields of Bethlehem were singing that night, proclaiming that night to those shepherds that they had a message of good news of great joy. Of course they did, when you think in terms of what the stakes are here. Jesus has come to bring us peace with God. We then need to, uh, to receive this message and, and rest in it. Now that begs some questions. How has this peace come about? Um, and that's what I want to look at here for the next few minutes. Two ways, two ways in which we could look at this, and Paul's pointing us in this direction in this first verse. Two ways, first through Christ, 
and by faith. I want to look at that and the implications of those two very simple things, how this peace has come about. First, through Christ. Let's look at it again, verses 1, and we'll go to verse 2 as well. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. I don't know if you caught this. Twice, Paul says how this has come about. Through Christ. You know, he's trying to, if you will, emphasize the point so that lest we would miss it. Now, this is shorthand to speak of through Christ. This is shorthand for Paul up to, you know, given all that he has said thus far in the book of Romans, these first four chapters that precede, of course, this fifth chapter. That's shorthand for speaking of Jesus' work, what Jesus has done, his finished work. And that can be broken down into two ways, as Paul does there in Romans 1 through 4. And the two ways that you can break it down in terms of Jesus' work has to do with, if you will, his obedience. And that can be described in, his active, in terms of his active obedience. These are theological terms, but I just want to break it down because I think it's helpful. His active obedience and his passive obedience. His active obedience. What is that about? Well, Jesus in his earthly ministry... Uh, his days here on this earth, lived a fully obedient life, obeying every aspect of God's commands to the nth degree with, without any glimmer of disobedience whatsoever. Now think, think of what that would, would look like. A life spent, no sins of omission, failing to do what we're supposed to do, and no sins of commission, you know, transgressing, transgressing, crossing that, that line. So, so that means, when you break that down, that means no errant thoughts, not a single one, over the whole of his life. No spiteful words, not a single one. And no hateful deeds. And all of pure motives. That's his active obedience. Now, how that comes to bear for us and the implications of that for us is Jesus, in living such a life of perfect obedience, is pre presents himself, if you will, in our stead, in our place, as our substitute to the Father. Such that his record, his obedience, his righteousness, all that he has accomplished, all that he has done, is imputed to us, is credited to us, is reckoned to us, is transferred to us as if we ourselves had done it. Fully. As if we ourselves had done it. As if we ourselves had obeyed to that degree. It's what Martin Luther referred to as an alien righteousness. And that's ours because of Jesus' active obedience. Now that's the first part. The second part is his passive obedience. I don't much care for that term. It sounds like you know you didn't do anything. That's not what that means at, at all. Um, but that's referring specifically to his sacrifice on the cross. So Jesus, as this blemishless Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, this one with this perfect record, presents himself to the Father 
in the nails on the cross. Such that God's judgment, God's wrath that was due for us is then poured out in full upon him and nothing held back. None of it held back. And it's no wonder he is called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So just as I said a moment ago, just as surely, it's, it's as, in terms of how God treats us, it's as just as um, he obeyed in our stead and looks at us as though we had done the very same thing, just as his obedience was credited to us, and we are then saved, so true he then hangs in our place. Or, or put it this way, just as his righteousness was imputed, was transferred, was given, was credited to us, our sin and our guilt was credited, transferred, reckoned to him. It's the great exchange. We receive his record, he receives ours. And that's what's going on there when you're thinking about the cross. So this one who lies there in the wooden manger, 33 years later, nailed on a wooden cross. That's what's going on there. Now, one last thing. The verbs. The verb tenses are worth paying attention to. I don't know if you, you caught this. The past tense and because of what has happened and been accomplished already in the past, it has these present ongoing effects now. So you see there in verse 1, we have been justified. And verse 2, we have obtained access. And because of that, we now then have peace. And therein have every reason to rejoice. As Paul says there in verses one and two. Think in terms of an inheritance, the giving over of an, of an inheritance. One person transferring all that they have, or at least, you know, and you could say some portion, but in this case I want to say all, all of what they have towards another. Um, and not because they've done anything to earn it or deserve it. So, you know, the, the big movie right now that's in the theaters, it's swept the box office across the globe, is the third installment of Tolkien's The, the Hobbit. Um, and uh, so, okay, fine. Let's talk about the inheritance as you see playing out there in The Hobbit and then The Lord of the Rings, the, the two three-parters there. So the story of The Hobbit is you have this hobbit named um, Bilbo Baggins, and Bilbo is take, goes out on this adventure. And uh, he, he uh, therein meets these trolls and goblins and uh, endures hunger and doubt and giant spiders and a fierce dragon. And it all changes him utterly. If you read of the course of the story, you realize he's not the same little hobbit that he was when he first left the hole. It's a dangerous thing, stepping out the front door, uh, that, that sort of thing. Um, he, he, he comes into possession of this mysterious ring that kind of has some serious implications for down the road. And also great treasure. Uh, he's not the same. Okay, that's the Hobbit. That's uh, Bilbo. And then you have uh, Frodo. Frodo, his young nephew, who becomes the primary character in Lord of the Rings. Because there in the very beginning of the Lord of the Rings, uh, Bilbo transfers as an inheritance all that he has over to his young nephew. 
So everything that he had suffered through, everything that he had gained, all of the esteem and his name and his fortune and his property is transferred over to his nephew. And that's, it's a legal transfer. There's nothing that anybody can do to change it or monkey with it or anything like that. All that was the uncle's is now the nephew's. And that then sets in motion the Lord of the Rings. Okay. I know I'm pushing it just a little bit with all of that. But my point is this. There's something of, the, of an inheritance in what Jesus has given to you and to me and what he has earned for you and for me. And there's nothing we did in any stretch of the imagination to deserve that. And there's nothing that can be done to take away from that. And I want you, I want you to hear this. It's not just as stunning as this is, all that we've ever done has been forgiven. But it's not just that. It's also that we are really right with God. It's been restored. Everything has been made right. Through Christ, peace has come. Shalom, as we've been talking about over these last several weeks. And it can't be undone by your circumstances. It can't be undone by events that seem to overtake you or by what your relatives or your friends say about you or how you feel this moment. Those things have no bearing on whether or not these things, whether or not this inheritance is or is not yours. Because Christ has accomplished this peace. And look at what Paul says there. Again, the, the, the past tense and the present accomplished things that we have been justified. We have Peace, therefore, we have obtained this access by faith into this grace in which we stand and so we can rejoice. This is not something that just sort of bends and twists with the wind. It's something that's solid in which we are called to stand. Jesus has come to make peace with God, and that is something that we need to receive, that message, one that is worth receiving and resting in. Okay, well, that takes us to the second point. And that is okay. But tell me then, how can this be ours? How is it that we, it is, that we lay hands upon it, that we lay hold of it? Well, Paul tells us that. You know, I assume you got a gift or, or two. Maybe some of you got coal. I know I deserved it, but I didn't get any. Um, you know, how to, you know, you've heard, I'm sure some of you have heard this sort of analogy. It's so simple, I think sometimes we just miss it because of its simplicity. But, you know, the gift is put before you. How do you receive it. You take it. You open it. You embrace it. How does that play itself out here? Let's look at what Paul says. Verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Again, twice. Just like he said, you know, how is it accomplished through Christ? He doesn't want us to miss the point here either. How is it we lay hold of this? By faith. By faith. And what, is that, what does Paul mean when he's, talking of, when he's speaking in such ways? Well, I'm going to give you ABCs here. It's not original to me, and many have spoken in these terms. The ABCs of, of faith, acknowledging and believing and confessing. It's the, the components, if you will, of what it means to accept this. Acknowledging. Acknowledging the state that you're in. Acknowledging the mess of your heart. A acknowledging the ugliness of your record. 
maybe as long-standing as years ago or as recent and fresh in your memory as this morning, acknowledging the record, acknowledging your heart and and the mess that you're in. And, And perhaps even let's go back a couple of pages to Romans 3. Romans chapter 3, and, and Paul is, is reading, I'm gonna, I don't mean these terms literal, I don't mean these terms lightly, excuse me, I don't mean these, this term lightly, this is a damning indictment, and Paul is, is applying it to all of us, to every man, woman, and child, this, these words from Romans 3, read your name, read your name when Paul says all, or everyone, or no one. You know, those, those, these inclusive, exhaustive terms. Read your individual name and what Paul is saying here because we've got to. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 10. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And in the way and the way of peace, they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. It's acknowledging that's true. I I don't want to hear this. I don't want to believe this. But I need to acknowledge that is true of me. And you need to acknowledge that that is true of you. The state that we're in and the need that we have. Nothing in our hands we bring. Declaring, if you like accounting terms, spiritual bankruptcy. Acknowledging the state that we're in and the need that we have. And then believing. Believing. Hearing what Paul is saying here. Not just about the state we're in and the need that we have, but what Jesus has done the finished work of Christ on the cross, both the active and the passive levels of or aspects of his obedience, believing. And and don't get confused on this point, that that believing is not a work. That's not something you're doing. That's not anything that you deserve anything for. It's not that you've now merited something because you are believing. That's not it at all. What Paul is speaking of here is is a simple act of reliance. And we're all relying on something or someone. He's simply talking about where and who and how. Relying, trusting, leaning into Christ, looking fully and not partially, fully to Christ. I mean, if you want to think in terms of, I'm I'm going to try and get this image right as it came to me uh, this morning. If, of, you, know, you think in terms of, 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 a, of a traveler out in the wilderness near treacherous cliffs, and it's at night, it's in fog, and the person loses their grip, or they lose their, their footing rather, goes over the edge and just is reaching out and grabs hold of one of those you know, branches that you think of in terms of shooting out from the side of the cliff, right? And they grab hold of it and they hold on and they pull themselves up and there they perch for the whole night. And when the light comes up, they're able to safely look their, work their way down and then they look up and they think to themselves, they look at all those other branches and they could see all of them were just utterly weak. There was only one. There was only one that could have held them. Now, would it make any sense at all to then say, 
boy, my grip, it sure is a good thing that I'm so quick and savvy and, and slick and I've got such a good grip and could maintain my balance so well. It's a good thing I did that. No, the praise, the boasting would be in the strength of the branch. That is what held you. And it's something like that. Don't get confused here. It's the strength of what holds you. It's Jesus. So acknowledging, believing, and confessing. Confessing with your lips to any who are ready to hear. Gladly telling of what Jesus has done for you and is doing for you. Of your experience in His forgiving you and setting you free from your sin. Progressively setting you free from your sin. Changing you day by day. Acknowledging, believing, confessing with our lips and with our lives. Honestly living before others, transparently living before others, not putting on a show, not being fake, being real, being honest. Because, of course, the gospel frees us to be able to do that. Um, that's how we lay hold. So the question is, how do we lay hold of this? What Jesus has accomplished by faith. Now, there's something, one more thing worth pointing out here, and that is the reality of false signals. Um... And I don't doubt that there are, and I don't know what the proportion is, and I don't know what the numbers are, but I don't doubt that many here in this room right now are suffering from false signals. Some of us are suffering from false negatives. Um, you're really stuck right now, really caught up in, in, in feeling the angst, the tension, the, the pain, the misery of on the one hand, knowing in a real depth of your heart, of knowing the Prince of Peace, and at the same time, you're not experiencing anything of His peace. And that's a miserable place to be. And the reason is, is because you're so caught up in worrying about not having done enough. Or maybe having done too much of the wrong thing. Remember what we read just earlier? I mean... I don't have, didn't really mean to go this way in my notes, but my goodness, it's worth going back to what was read earlier from Isaiah 55. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as, high as, the heavens are, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And the reason that the Lord is, was inspiring Isaiah to say those things was to implore the people to appeal to Him for mercy. Because, of course, we are so used to treating one another in one way and being treated by each other in a certain way. And the Lord is saying, that may be true in this sphere, but that's not the way I work. My love has no strings. I'm putting no hoops before you in which you have to jump. My ways are higher than, my, than your ways. So much higher. So my friends, this morning, if you're suffering from these false negatives, I beg you, I plead with you, rest in the finished work of Christ for you. Breathe it in every day so that you can breathe it out. Or just so you can breathe. Breathe it in so that you can breathe it out. And let the peace come. Let the peace come. 
Some of you are suffering from that, those false negatives. But I, I dare say that in a gathering like this, some of us are suffering from false positives. You say, yeah, I'm at peace with God. I got it figured out. I've established the terms, and it's working out fine. My friend, you do not have peace with God. He will not have peace established with Him on your terms, but on His. And it's not by what you do. It's by what He has already done. It's the finished work of Christ. As Paul says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You have not a relationship with God. You have at best an association with God. And so I would plead with you to trust in Him, to rest in Him. And you again, you, you too, as we all do, need to then let the peace come. Let the peace of Christ come. Jesus has come to give us peace with God. We need to receive that news. It is the best news indeed. Receive that and rest in it. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, those of you who have been here the last several weeks, you know that uh, we've been doing this little series on this peace with God, this shalom, how Jesus has come as the Prince of Peace, as he is described in Isaiah 9. As the Prince of Peace... Uh, come because of these separations. And some weeks ago we talked about these images of these, how with the fall it was as though a rock came dropping into a pond and sent ripples out into every, every direction. Or, if you will, an explosion and, and, and then sending out shrapnel tearing through the fabric of reality, creating these alienations, creating these separations, creating this tearing of everything such that Creation was disrupted. Our relationship with each other was disrupted. Our within was disrupted. And, of course, now our relationship with God as, as well. And, and I want to just end with this and just talk about this, this last thing before we wrap up not just this last installment but the series as a whole. And that is with this, the, the, the question, the, the, well, the ask the question and get to the answer. Do we really need peace with God? For about the last 30 minutes, I've been assuming that that was the case. But do we really need peace with God? I mean, you know, I think it's fair to say that it's, it's obvious when you look at creation. Yep, that, that, that's a mess. Though the world and its state, that, that's, that's a mess. If, as I think of my relationships with others, there's a lot of holes there. It's been shot through like Swiss cheese. Yeah, got a mess there. I think about my own heart, my own conscience, my own anxieties, my own issues. <laughs> yeah, there's a mess there. But yeah, do I really need peace with God? Is that really such a big deal? Yes. Let me try and explain why in, in two ways. First, that peace with God is absolutely vital if you're, if you're really going to have any of those other experience of, of peace. If, if we're going to have anything with creation being restored, our relationships with each other being restored, and ourselves within being restored, peace with God is absolutely vital. Again, that image, right, of, of the stone coming down and the ripples going out, or the, the explosion going and the shrapnel. If we're going to 
get to the heart of the issue, if we're going to get to the center, if we're going to get to the core of the problem, you've got to go to where it began. You've got to go deeper and deeper still. If things are really going to be made right, because it goes out from there, it all goes, all of our problems in one way or another are traced back to this. Quoted from, I alluded to something C.S. Lewis wrote earlier. One last thing uh, from Mere Christianity. This is an analogy, an image I know you've heard me, some of you have heard me use no few times. I'm actually going to read from that paragraph right now. Lewis writes There are two ways in which the human machine goes wrong. One is when human individuals drift apart from one another, or else collide with one another and do one another damage. The other is when things go wrong inside the individual. When the different parts of him, his different faculties and so on, either drift apart or interfere with one another. As a matter of fact, you cannot have the one without the other. Think of us as a fleet of ships sailing in formation. If the ships keep on having collisions, they will not remain seaworthy very long. On the other hand, if their steering gears are out of order, they will not be able to avoid collisions. What Lewis is getting at is exactly what I'm trying to say here is that if we want to get to if we want to get the steering mechanisms fixed as, a, as an example, if we're going to keep ourselves from having these collisions, just speaking relationally, some repair, some damage control is going to have to be, take place in the heart. And that's again, that's the first reason as to why. Again, all these other peace, all these other aspects of peace hinge on peace with God. Okay, here's the second reason. It's just vital in and of itself. Even if we just, just wiped all those other aspects off the board, peace with God is essential and vital to have in and of itself. Another image, bear with me. A solar system. Think the solar system for a minute. Okay? And you think in terms of the harmony that takes place in the solar system because the planets, bear with me, agree with one another in their orbits because they have one center, right? All the planets in our solar system agree with one another because they have one center and they're in there. You don't see these collisions like you would in some crazy science fiction movie, you know, where the orbits get all thrown off and then you have, you know, Mars running into Jupiter or, or whatever the case may be. Um, Bridging to the analogy, God's, if you want to think in terms of the solar system, God is the center. And he does all things according to his glory, for the sake of his glory. He does all things out of the, as an expression of his perfect and righteous and holy character. He's the center. What do we do things out of? Our own center. For the sake of our own glory. Or as Francis Schaeffer used to say, for our own personal peace and affluence. And so we have inevitable collisions. We're orbiting, we're orbiting. Here's God at the center of it all. And boom! 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 Because our orbit is off. Our orbit is desperately off. We're hostile to him and yet at the same time made for him. 
utterly dependent upon him and yet living as though we were independent from him. Or if I can just you know, steal from an old U2 song, we can't live with or without him. That, again, that is the heart of all of our problems. Our center is off. We are in desperate need of this peace and of someone to come and give us this peace. And my friends, that's exactly what we see here with Christmas. The coming of the Savior, the Prince of Peace, who has come to give us peace for creation, peace with each other, peace within, and peace with God. That's good news. Great joy. Let's pray. Lord, as Paul has made clear here, as your apostle, your spokesman, your mouthpiece has made clear here in Romans, something has happened. As surely as as you arrived on the scene in that little town of Bethlehem, laid in a manger, as surely as those events happened and all the things surrounding it with the angels and the shepherds and the magi coming and the rulers of the earth thinking that they could do you down, as surely as all that transpired and as surely as years later you made the purpose of your coming all the clearer and the mission was accomplished, your cries from the cross that is finished in the tomb three days later, empty. Something has happened. For as the curse is found, something has happened. And so we say joy to the world. Something has happened and you have come, O Prince of Peace, to give us peace. And we pray that you would help us to see the implications of this. As we think of our past, as we think of the present, as we think of the future, and all that would cause us hesitation to even want to go there. Do not be afraid, because the Prince of Peace has come. You see, think in terms of the implications as to what this means as we think of our relationships with each other, as we think of just what would otherwise be utter turmoil within our hearts, as we think of our relationship with you. Help us to, to grab hold of the reality that peace has come because the Prince of Peace has come. And to give you praise. In your name we pray. Amen.